The lay of the land politically has not really shifted since the beginning of the pandemic. When COVID arrived, the Liberals had a minority government propped up by the NDP. Now, fast forward to this summer and the Liberals plunged the country into an election which no one wanted to arrive back at the same point. A liberal minority. Now they'll have to lay out their agenda with an eye on support from another party. What should be the top priorities of this government? Hello and welcome to Unpublished TV. I'm Ed Hand. We're coming to you from a remote location and practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. The fourth wave of the pandemic is here. Debt and deficit is piling up. Employers are having trouble finding help and indigenous reconciliation is Top of mind for many Canadians. Our unpublished.vote question asked you, what should be the top priority of the federal government? The top answer, economic recovery by 49.7%, vaccine mandates at 4.5%, indigenous reconciliation at 3.4%, climate change 6.1%, electoral reform 24%, foreign policy and trade 1.1%, other 11.2. However, you're watching and listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or our podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote, then email your MP to tell them why. Now, joining us to discuss the priorities of the new federal government, Tom Karkin is a columnist uh, as well. Dylan Penner is the climate and social justice campaigner for the Council of Canadians. And Marvin Ryder is uh, an associate professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. And I thank you all for joining us to discuss the priorities of the new federal government. And almost half say economic recovery should be the top priority. Tom, does that surprise you at all? Uh, no, it doesn't surprise me because there's still a lot of people out of work. There's still a lot of uh, doubt about when this pandemic will be over and when uh, when the right time would be to start easing off uh, support programs like um, the rent subsidy program, the, the the wage subsidy program, or the benefit program for individuals who aren't covered by EI. These are very active issues, and I think one of the first things we're going to see uh, is uh, a debate about that because some of these programs expire in uh, about 10 days. And uh, without that, uh, you know, if you're in Toronto, you may say, well, you know, pandemic's nearly over. It's really not affecting businesses. But, you know, uh, go to Regina, go to Edmonton, go to Calgary. Different story. Uh, it's a smaller program. It'll be a smaller program now because there's a smaller number of people that will qualify. But I think it's still a needed program. Uh, and, um We'll see how that debate goes in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Dylan, what do you think? Are you surprised that almost half say that the number one priority should be economic recovery? It's not surprising. We're in the midst of a pandemic crisis. We're in the midst of an inequality crisis and and we're in the midst of a climate crisis too. And that's why I think we need to see a, a just recovery that addresses the, those interconnected challenges that that so many people are are facing because they're they're not disconnected they're they're very much intertwined and and that's why we need to see something like a just transition which trudeau has promised that would guarantee good green jobs for people from coast to coast to coast Uh, and marvin what do you think are you surprised that it's almost half well i'm going to say yes but in this way i would say the first priority is defeating covid you know as was just pointed out the situation in Alberta and Saskatchewan is, is still quite dire. Uh, there's still maybe even rumors of lockdowns. Yes, in Ontario and in Quebec, it does look like the fourth wave was pretty minor and maybe there won't be a fifth wave. But before we can start to recover from the pandemic, we've got to defeat the pandemic. That probably means still working to try to increase the vaccination rates 
give people some incentives. This whole discussion of vaccine passports and something you're going to start to see in the courts, uh, employers saying that if you are not vaccinated, you are going to lose your job as of some date. Some of them will be happening in October, some November. Those things are still top of mind. Then whenever we can get the pandemic, and I don't know what the World Health Organization is going to do. Are they going to say the global pandemic is over or are they going to go country by country and say, okay, the pandemic's good here, but no, it's not there. I'm not sure what they're going to do, but then that's when we can really talk about recovery. I think I see that more as a 2022 thing. Uh, you know, Tom, uh, the federal government has been talking about uh, taxes on profitable banks. I, and I don't know too many unprofitable banks in this country, <laughs> but, you know, is there enough there to, 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 you know, lift this country up? Or is that just sort of like I say, when you're putting a tax on, on you know, the ultra wealthy, it's like low hanging fruit? Well, <laughs> Uh, the Trudeau government, well, Trudeau during the election campaign did offer uh, to increase taxes on, I think, banks and insurance companies. And, you know, it was kind of a rich target, easy to hit. Uh, I, I think it won't yield the kind of money that's really out there to be gotten. And, the you know, the bigger target really is um, trying to do something about tax havens. And, uh, you know, what do we do about the fact that we've got people who, um, personally control hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars in this country, uh, getting wealthier and wealthier and wealthier, um, while others are absolutely, you know, struggling. And, and we're having an active discussion about, you know, should we increase healthcare uh, transfers to provinces above the rate of uh, economic growth, uh, which doesn't even factor in for population growth? Um, you know, something in here eventually is going to break. Uh, ho hopefully all the the funding that we've put into the money and the deficits that we put into supports during this pandemic are a one-time thing. But moving on from here, you know, if if we if we care about uh, having a pharmacare program, if that's a, if, that, if that's more than just smoke and mirrors, uh, if we if we want to increase, as premiers are asking, uh, funding for healthcare transfers six percent rather than the current um, GDP max of three, um, you know, it requires other revenue sources, and it, it's not and like. It's not going to be from you and me. It's not going to be from anyone in this show. Um, that's just politically unpalatable. Uh, working class people uh, don't have the money. Middle class people uh, feel pressed. Um, there is this large group out there. And, uh, you know, the Parliamentary Budget Office have said, has said that uh, uh, taxes on ultra wealthy people can yield billions and billions of dollars uh, in revenue. So um, I, if, if, if Mr. Trudeau's... Uh, if his, is if, if his uh, interest is so limited, uh, I think the flip side of that is that his ability uh, to press on uh, things like healthcare transfers, pharmacare, and others are, is going to be limited as well. Uh, Dylan, what do you think? Uh, you know, going after the banks, going after the ultra wealthy, it, will it actually make it make a difference? Is is it enough, or is it uh, a drop in the bucket? Yeah, I think that's very true. I think I think it's a an, a really important piece of the the puzzle in how we tackle several interconnected crises. We've seen several polls that show people recognize that tackling the climate crisis and tackling inequality, uh, taxing the rich these these things go hand in hand. They're they're not isolated challenges. And and we we've seen this massive uh, wealth transfer over years from the general public to to the one percent. And and it's that that same uh, you know 
those institutions of corporate power that are also standing in the way of a just recovery and a just uh, transition and and real climate action. And we're just weeks away now from the next uh, UN climate summit. We're we're likely weeks away from the reconvening of, of parliament. And we're at a political moment where Justin Trudeau has promised a just transition act that would address a lot of these these challenges and would address the the jobs crisis that many people are facing while addressing inequality and the climate crisis at at the same time. And so the question is, will he actually introduce that legislation in the near future uh, since there was a consultation recently just before that started just before the federal election? And if so, what's actually going to be in it? And that's partly why we're uh, working with groups from coast to coast to organize the Climate Code Red Week of Action this week to uh, basically engage communities in defining what a just transition uh, should look like so it's not left to the corporate elite. Marvin, I, I, I'm wondering, you know, going after, you know, profitable banks, ultra wealthy, uh, I'm, I'm, in particular with the bank side, I'd be kind of curious if you can start taxing banks more, what's the impact on the financial sector? Well, if you don't mind, let me just turn that discussion ever so slightly. Uh, the ultra wealthy, boy, that's easy. You know, uh, well, let's go after the rich. There are only 65, count them, 65 billionaires in Canada. So yes, Mr. Trudeau could introduce a fifth tax level you know, if you earn more than X number of millions of dollars a year, you're going to pay a higher marginal tax rate. And yes, he'll get some money from that for sure. But it's not like there's a, a million of those people lying around um, to get to the top 1%. I believe you have to earn something like 250 or $260,000 a year. Full disclosure, I'm not in the top 1%, but I am in the top 2%. Uh, so we've already paid a, a bit of a premium. Going after the banks, same kind of a thing. I think there is some room here to raise their marginal tax rate. We're worried about competitiveness, but in that way, we're worried more about competitiveness of manufacturing institutions. With banks, our tax rates for them are quite competitive with the rest of the world. So add a percentage or two, let them moan about it, but they'll still be fine. But I think what happened this week, or at least in the past week, is very significant. And Mr. Trudeau has to put in legislation that goes with that. The world's countries, I think it was 125 of the world's countries agreed to a minimum 15% tax on corporate profits and based on where you do your business, not where your head office is. Historically, companies like Apple and what have you have found little tax havens, places, well, I'll call that my head office in Switzerland, even though only two people work there, because now I can save all this money. And, and of course, now we need some legislation, but if we can get 15% of the profit that Apple makes here in Canada or that Amazon makes in Canada, or whoever makes in Canada, that's going to help give him a bit more revenue. But but look, I, I think the other challenge here is even if he gets more revenue, what's he going to do with it? Our books are balanced. So before you start launching uh, 12 new programs that are each going to have multi-billion dollar price tags, we've got a real problem, for instance, with the old age security system. Last year, $57 billion for it in 2020. It'll be $80 billion by 2025, just based on the growing aging population in Canada. We just need money to keep our current programs going. Uh, Tom, uh, and, and this is on Marvin had brought up earlier. It was uh, regarding vaccine mandates. And the prime minister announced when uh, this election or the last election was called, that was the reason for it. Let people mm. have their vo voice on that. Was it just to differentiate himself from the conservatives? <laughs> well, um, uh, you know, my own opinion on this, Ed, is that uh, the vaccine mandate mission, uh, mandate uh, uh, passport thing should have been done months and months and months ago. Mm. Uh, we know that bureaucrats and the federal government were looking into it. 
uh, gosh, there was, you know, any number of people like the people here in this show talking about it in the spring. And wow, we got this is makes sense. This is the kind of thing that we got to do, right? This is how we're going to let businesses try and stay open, even as this uh, virus circulates. Um, then they pitch it, you know, the, the Friday before an election call on Sunday and say, we'll do it after the election. I mean, um, to me, that was a very cynical, cynical move because they, instead of considering our health first, they, they just wanted to, it seemed anyway, Ed, that they mm-hmm. wanted to use it as an election ploy uh, yeah. to crack the corner of the conservatives. And, you know, the conservatives uh, being kind of dopey about this uh, allowed themselves to be um, cornered and uh, shocker, uh, they lost. Um, but where are we? When are we going to have a passport, a national passport? When you fly out of this country, when will you have something to be able to show? We don't know. We don't know the date for that. We we know that some public servants in the uh, in the federal sector will be required to be vaccinated. I'm I'm in favor of that, uh, and and I think we've got a date at the end of October for that. Anyway, I, I think this the unfortunate thing about a lot of this is that uh, we've gotten to this place where where these issues have become political uh, rather than uh, rather than allowing all the parties, as it should be, to me, in my mind, to support, which they say they do, to, to support these programs and try and march forward together and get these things done. Because sooner we get these things done, <laughs> the sooner we get our, our economy back, the sooner we get all the things back that we used to love to do, like have Thanksgiving dinners, mm-hmm. um, you know, Christmas, New Year's, and... Um, you know, the, the games, I, I have a little tolerance for them. Uh, let me add one more thing here. It's like it, under Martin and Chrétien, uh, in their elections in 97, in 2000, 2004, uh, 93 as well, it was 21 days from the election day to the day that the parliament was reconvened. We're, we're already past that. And we haven't even got a cabinet shuffle date. I mean, this isn't a whole new government. This is just a shuffle. Uh, and then move on. And now they're saying, well, you know, uh, before the end of fall. Well, fall is December 21st. That's the end of fall. Yeah. Wasn't, weren't there some urgent issues uh, that, you know, isn't that why Mr. Trudeau called this election? Because we had things we had to deal with. And yet we seem to be in infinite stall now with mm-hmm. uh, no, no date for cabinet, no date for parliamentary recall. And there's, you know, there's many, many issues that didn't get passed in the last parliament. Mr. Trudeau said that was because of the opposition. Uh, I think he's playing a, a foolish game because now he's giving the opposition every reason to be able to play that story back to him. Uh, and then when he wants to go for an early election next time, well, it's going to be, I'm sorry, Joe, you, you started too late. Uh, Dylan, to, to follow up on the vaccine mandates, um, you know, I, I, Trudeau has said that federal civil servants will have to be vaccinated. That's going to be mandatory. But I, I, I'm a little surprised that it, it seems like he's, trying to pick a fight with a civil service. Is that the way you see it? Well, it, it wouldn't be the, the first time that, that this government has uh, picked a fight with the labor movement. Uh, we've, we've seen uh, back to work legislation before. Uh, you know, there, there are many examples, but, you know, ultimately a lot of this comes down to what kind of just recovery are, are we going to have? We've already seen, you know, there, there's been, this track record of, of serious needs for supports from from workers, from from indigenous peoples, from racialized peoples, from from communities in, in general, and and again and again, we've been seeing bailouts for for corporations, and and that's that's ultimately what the the bottom line here is. And, and as Tom's been saying, there's this distinct 
lack of a sense of urgency from this government, uh, whether it's the the pandemic or the climate crisis or or the 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 housing and transit and, and food crises that, that many people are facing and and, and many more. And, and so we really need to see uh, much more uh, recognition and action from this government uh, when it comes to the severity of the interconnected crises that we're that we're facing, and and that's what why it comes down to being so important that people take action and organize in, in their communities because left to their own devices, we've we've seen the lack of urgency of of this government uh, before, and we'll see it again unless we in our movements and our communities uh, get more organized so that they. Feel feel compelled to take action. Marvin, uh, when we talk about these vaccine mandates and you had brought up earlier that you're going to you expect to see a fair amount of legal action with employees and employers going to court. Uh, how much is this going to, you know, all this court stuff and, and trying to figure out who gets vaccinated, who doesn't? How, how do you see that impact in the recovery? Well, it's going to be a mess. It's just going to be a mess. Uh, there are two laws that are sort of uh, going to come into conflict. The first is the occupational safety and health legislation that says an employer needs to take every step possible to create a safe workplace for their employees. Now, it's never really been tested under pandemic. Our last pandemic in 1918, we didn't have the OSHA type legislation around. Uh, but OK, if I want to make it as safe as possible, OK, everybody, you need to be vaccinated. And look, if you're not going to get vaccinated, then we're either going to do a rigorous testing of you. You know, every day when you come in, we're going to swab your nose and what have you or something to that effect. The other legislation, of course, is human rights legislation, which says that I am the master of my body. I control what I do. Uh, big bad government, you can't tell me what to do. Big bad employer, you can't tell me what to do. And so here we have a situation where I, as an individual, maybe do not want the vaccine. I don't want these, these compounds in my body. And yet my employer says that if I don't get vaccinated, I don't have a job. In the United States, just to put this in a little context, there are 3.5 million people who deal in healthcare, doctors, nurses, nursing assistants, what have you. Uh, assuming they all move to a vaccine mandate, 70,000, 70,000 doctors and nurses will lose their job. It's only 2% of the total. But when I say 70,000, oh my gosh, we need every last nurse and doctor we can get. And yet those people who are, we'll call them conscientious objectors to the vaccine, that's kind of the impact. So I know in Ontario, because uh, certainly where I live in Hamilton, there's a number of hospitals that have said, I believe the date is in November, that if you are a doctor or a nurse and you're not vaccinated, you don't have a job. Wow. So that's put the fat in the fire. That's what's going to then lead to the lawsuits. And by the way, it'll be the first lawsuit, then that will be appealed and that I'll be appealed, and I can tell you right now, it'll work its way right to the Supreme Court, probably in about 2024, by which time we hope to be out of the pandemic. So I concur with everybody here. I'm fine with a vaccine passport. I was lucky enough to visit uh, in August, and Italy has got the green pass. Now, I could not get the green pass because I'm not an Italian citizen or an EU member. So I brought my two vaccination certificates and a photo ID to indicate it was me. It added 10 seconds to my visits. And it made you feel better because everybody in this tourist attraction, whatever it was, was vaccinated. I felt fine with it. But I don't understand why it's taking us so long. Just get the system they're using in Europe, change the name to Canada, and you've got yourself a vaccine passport. Marvin, you always come up with the answer, don't you? You always do. <laughs> 
Uh, now, affordable housing. We heard a lot of affor- about affordable housing during the campaign and how each party would address it. Uh, and, you know, obviously, when you look at it, we have a scorching market, a scorching real estate market. Uh, Tom, uh, how do you cool off a scorching real estate market without collateral damage? Wow, this is <clears throat> this is a <laughs> this this is a terrible question. Um, you know, uh, here we are. We, we, we've we've got a couple of factors going on. Uh, one one is uh, inflation. So uh, this question of whether inflation is transitory or whether it's now become systemic, and we're looking at no. So if we're looking at inflation, we're looking at higher interest rates. So if we're looking at higher interest rates, now we're looking at pu- pushing people out of jobs, losing incomes, and obviously that affects uh, the housing market. Of course, it also increases the mortgage cost, the carrying cost of a mortgage. So that's going to drive down the value. So. This idea of inflation is not, uh, I'm, I'm not part of the kind of inflation craze that wants to see inflation everywhere. I don't want to see inflation, but people are so leveraged now uh, because of what's happened for the last 25 years, 30 years, um, it's, it's at a critical, critical mm-hmm. point. So uh, without doing that, um, how do we try and take what's, what's happened and just kind of flatten it rather than crash it? This is the challenge. Now, my own mind, uh, I, I, I think you know what we, we need to do is we need to be able to provide uh, more affordable uh, housing at the at the low end, and that that brings the entire market. It kind of suppresses demand. Mm-hmm. If I can live in a decent apartment uh, for a thousand dollars a month, um, then because it's a co-op or a nonprofit, uh, and you know it's got long long uh, vision on you know, like a 50-year uh, financing vision um, with no, you know, without the need to refinance, without the need to, uh, the desire to take profit out and speculate and turn it over. Um, I think we can anchor the housing market on something a little more secure. Um, that, I, I think, runs against what we're doing, unfortunately, which seems to be a strategy of uh, uh, backing finance for private developers rather than backing finance for Nonprofit and co-ops, they have a lot of problems accessing the finance to do the job. So um, that's my take on it, Ed. Um, not a housing expert, uh, but funny. I do read some of them. Um, that's right. But but I'll, but I'll tell you, well, I am quite frightful about you know all those people who who are out there with million dollar mortgages uh, and um, not the incomes to support them if if interest rates go up. Uh, Dylan, you know, when we were talking about affordability, we were talking about economic recovery and, and how do you see climate change working its way into economic recovery for Canada? Well, a lot of it comes down to finding more ways of taking the profit motive out of many sectors of our society and economy. Housing is a great example where where rents are, are skyrocketing and, and we need to be talking about even more than just affordable housing because in some places the you know the local definition uh, of, of what affordable housing is in, in Vancouver is not any, for example, is not anywhere near affordable. And at the same time, we also need to recognize that we we need to be addressing the things like the affordability crisis and the housing crisis in tandem with the climate crisis. If you look at just housing and, and buildings as an example, there, there's plenty of studies out there that show about 70% of the buildings that are built today are going to still be standing in 2050. And so what we're building today 
needs to be affordable for, for the crisis that people are facing today, while also addressing the climate crisis in terms of building emissions, which are, are a huge uh, a huge source in, in municipalities uh, from coast to coast of, of emissions. And so that needs to be part of solving the affordability crisis and the economic crisis and the climate crisis all, all at once. And, and that's why we need systemic change, because we, we need to be solving these crises with holistic solutions, basically, and, that, and that's why we need things like a just transition and, and a Green New Deal for public housing and, and taking more things, frankly, in, into public ownership so that uh, profits are, are not driving uh uh, public services or, or, or services that people need, whether it's housing or food or, or transit and transportation in, into, into the, the range of being totally uh, unaffordable, especially uh, given the, the jobs crisis that's been exacerbated by this pandemic. Marvin, uh, when the election campaign started, we learned of the discovery of bodies of uh, residential school students in Kamloops and considering the outrage then and so many priorities for this government. Do you expect there's going to be any meaningful work on this file? Well, I'm going to say yes, but perhaps not the way you mean when you ask that. Um, there are, and I forget the exact number, but I think it's 97 residential schools in Canada I could be out by 10 one way or the other. And so, so step number one is to use ground penetrating radar on all of these, not to discover children's bodies, because you can't distinguish a child's body from an adult's body with ground penetrating radar, but to discover how many graves in total we are. And then the next question is going to be, well, what are we going to do? Are we planning to exhume these graves? Are we looking for DNA materials? Are we going to try to trace them back? The Catholic Church, for good or bad, has released some records that indicates that not everybody buried in these unmarked cemeteries are children, that there were nuns, there were priests who, when they died, they were buried there. There were neighbors uh, up to the school who, rather than being buried on their property, said, let's be buried there. This is going to be, it's a Gordian knot, it's going to take four or five years, at least, to begin to resolve, put names to who's buried where, to know how many of them are children. And by the way, how did those children die? Did they die of scarlet fever? Did they die of, of, um, of, of smallpox? What, what did they die of? Or heaven forbid that they were truly murdered by someone with their hands around their throat. This is going to take a long time. So we'll make progress on the file, but it's going to be drip, 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 as we used to joke about Chinese water torture. It's going to make the situation, it's like rubbing a wound and you're just not going to let it heal. You can't begin to get it healing until we know what the scope of that issue is. So we will make progress on it, much like we have made progress on making sure First Nations have clean water. When Justin Trudeau took over back in the dark ages, six years ago, 153 boil water advisories. Today, it's below 50. So no, he wanted them all gone by 2021 and he failed on that. But he did make progress. And, and I think this is what we're going to see, slow and steady progress. And one other quick note, Ed, truth and reconciliation does not happen overnight. You know, this was uh, this year, the first September 30th was the first truth and reconciliation day. It wasn't the last. So we're going to have to keep listening, keep hearing stories, keep being respectful. It's going to take a long, long time to heal. And when I say a long time, we could be measuring that in decades and decades and decades while we're trying to tackle these other crises. All right. And folks, let's just go around the horn one last time. Uh, Tom, we'll start with you. How long will this minority government last? <laughs> well, I suspect the fate of this government is tied very much to the fate of Justin Trudeau himself. 
And uh, if he um, stays around, uh, then I think it's hard for him to pull the pin early uh, because of the controversy that he unleashed by doing it this last time. Uh, if he retires, he says, you know, uh, he's already kind of shown signs that maybe he's not too interested in this anymore. I think the length of time, the Tofino thing was a, a kind of evidence. And then the length of time bringing Parliament back, I think is more of that. Mm. If he goes um, and say Christian Freeland succeeds him, I think then she's got a, an argument that she needs a democratic mandate and, and calls an election. Uh, um, it's not kind of the same situations with, with the Trudeau. So it's the timing on that. How early could that happen? Well, if the if Mr. Trudeau, uh, you know, takes his walk in the snow in this uh, this winter, late winter, the Liberals could have a replacement in place by fall. Um, and anytime after that, you know, a budget or two, we could be back into it. So I think th- that's those are the pieces to watch. All right. And otherwise, we're we're looking for a longer Parliament than last time. I hope. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ballpark you at about two uh, two years, Dylan. Uh, how long do you expect this government will last? I think it's anyone's guess at this point. <laughs> I, I think, regardless of how long it lasts, I think the the question is, uh, what is it going to do, and 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 what are people in communities going to do to make sure uh, that this uh, government uh, li- lives up to to what uh, what people from coast to coast. Are, are demanding in, in terms of addressing the economic crisis and, and the climate crisis and 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 the and the pandemic and and that's why again I encourage folks to to get involved in in the code red climate code red week of action we're organizing uh, this week at uh, canadians.org/greennewdeal there are over 50 actions uh, so far uh, confirmed from coast to coast and and people are planning to flood parliament with waves of uh, petitions for support for a, a just transition to to make sure that however long this government last that that it is actually uh prioritizing the kind of uh, good green jobs that that people need and and supporting the workers who are who are in industries that that need to transition and supporting workers who are in that are already doing uh low carbon work but but are uh not experiencing uh decent uh fair wages or or decent working conditions and 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 we need supports uh, for them uh, as well as migrant justice and and all of the the interconnected uh challenges we're facing and i think a big question Question as well is going to be uh, how how this uh, government uh, either addresses colonialism or continues to to perpetuate it. Uh, getting back to the the residential schools question and how that goes hand in hand uh, with with this government's approach to uh, building pipelines through indigenous territories with without consent. You can't separate uh, those those issues and and those are going to uh, help define what what kind of movement responses we see. We've seen in the last uh, several years that there have been various uprisings from from various movements uh, directly in response to this government's actions and and inactions and and I think that's going to to be a big part in how long this government lasts and and as well uh whether or not it enacts policies that that reflect what uh, people and communities are calling for what do you think Marvin how long will this government last before the next election right historically minority governments in Canada live 25 months Justin pulled the trigger after 23. Um, Assuming it's his to decide, I think his lesson was go longer. So I'm thinking it'll be more like 30 months, two and a half years. But keep in mind, a minority parliament is not completely in Justin's hand. The uh, Conservatives and the NDP could trigger a a motion of non-confidence. Having said that to you, Aaron O'Toole is somewhat chastened. I think he really thought he was going to be the savior riding over the hill, the white knight. 
and the White Knight didn't, <laughs> didn't win, didn't do well, if anything, did a little worse. Even Jagme uh, thought he'd be riding a positive wave, and he didn't get that much out of it. So we've got, I think, a good two years, but I think all things being equal, two and a half. Do it in the spring. Do it in the spring rather than uh, middle of the winter. So that would get us to, what, 2024? I think that's what my bet is. All right. Well, uh, folks, I want to thank you all for joining us. Our unpublished TV panelist today, political commentator Tom Parkin. Dylan Penner is the climate and social justice campaigner for the Council of Canadians. And Marvin Ryder, associate professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Coming up on our next unpublished TV, will electoral reform come to Canada? Thanks for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.